Yalana everyone and welcome to this new episode of season two of the Pacific Talks, a podcast where I engage in active conversations with my guests to talk about global challenges through a Pacific perspective. For this new episode, we are looking closely at the situation of journalism in our region. What are the challenges, the specificities and the hopes going forward for a well-informed Pacific region? To share insights to you on this topic, I'm talking today with Alexander Rini. Alexander is a journalist from PNG, now working as an editor for the Samoan Observer in Apia. Before that, Alexander has been strongly involved in reflections on journalism by working at the Pacific Freedom Forum, the Media Council of PNG, the Lowy Institute, and many news organizations in the region. Now, on to my conversation with Alexander. Alexander, Yorana, welcome to Pacific Talks. Philippe, thank you for having me. Uh, first question, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your life, uh, life path? Oh, well, uh, I'm a Papua New Guinean. Uh, first of all, um, I am based here in Samoa. I work for Samoa's only daily newspaper, the Samoa Observer. I've lived, mm-hmm. in, I've lived in Samoa since June 2018. Um, I was previously the editor for one of Papua New Guinea's two daily newspapers, the Post Korea, uh, um, and I was an editor for four years. Uh, from 2012, I made my exit in 2016. Um, I decided to uh, take on some new challenges. That's how I ended up here at the uh, Sam Observer, uh, based in Apia, Samoa. All right. Uh, great. So as you're in Samoa, let's have a look at the situation uh, on the ground there first. Uh, so the elections happened in April last year. We all follow that uh, with all the turmoil that uh, ensued. Uh, can you tell us what's the political situation at that time? Oh, well, um, what happened was we had a general election. Um, no one envisaged um, the Human Rights Protection Party losing um, the, uh, at the elections. Um, it, uh, they had a landslide win back in 2016 in the last general election. Um, that didn't happen um, last year in April. Um, so what happened was uh, both parties came back, uh, the Human Rights Protection Party and the FAST Party. Um, FAST uh, is an acronym uh, for, for, the, for the party. It's F-A-A-S-T. It's a, it's a Samoan word. I think it has something, something along the lines of ALOFA um, or something. Um, it's it's quite um, it's quite long. Uh, forgive me for my Samoan. I'm not uh, well versed. Um, I don't really speak the language, so it's going to be a mouthful if I was to um, um, say it to you. But the first party, no uh, the acronym, um, came back with uh, with 25 uh, seats um, to equal HRPP. So prior to the elections um, in the last parliament, uh, the HRPP um, had uh, 47 members of parliament. Um, when they went to the polls, they had 47 members of parliament. Uh, when the results started uh, coming back um, from the elections on April 9, last year, um, it was obvious to everyone that uh, the party suffered a major defeat at the election. 
So the numbers of uh, MPs from 47 came down to 25. So close to half of the uh, of its members lost at the elections last year. Um, and then uh, there was a big shift. Um, if you were to look at the map of Samoa, you have two islands, the two main islands. You have Upolu and, and Savai. Um, so most of the first party's new members came from, are from Savai. They are from constituencies in Savai. And Savai is the, is the bigger island of the two. Um, Upolu is where the capital Apia is located. Um, but most of the uh, first party's new members came from Savai. So, so, you, so we can say that uh, Savai voted for FAST um, and Upolu voted for mm -hmm. HRPP. So we had a situation where there was a, there was a, a deadlock because, uh, of course, with both parties coming back with, with 25 members, uh, we had uh, a deadlock in the numbers. They were tied. So there was only one independent member of parliament uh, who got elected from a seat in Savai. He was the one with, with the key to government formation. So Tuala uh, Ponifacio uh, decided to join the first party. So the first party went up by uh, 26 seats uh, to HRPP's 25. So consequently, um, they had a, a slim majority. Um, they were supposed to form form the uh, the government, but then the electoral commission had other ideas. They decided to uh, invoke provisions of the of Samoa's constitution in in terms of uh, women representation, where they supposed to be a ten percent of the of the winning numbers that uh, allocated to to women seats. And um, what happened was to uh, HR, the uh, electoral commissioner uh, decided to uh, to uh, announce two women from the Human Rights Protection Party as the new uh, women seat representatives. So the so the HRPP numbers went up uh, from twenty five to twenty seven. So uh, consequently, uh, Fast went to court. Uh, they went and filed an application in the Supreme Court, questioning the constitutionality of that of the declaration by the uh, by the Office of the Electoral Commission. Um, and that was how the whole uh, political crisis um, started, because then we had the head of state of Samoa also getting involved, uh, and uh, using the um, the twenty five twenty five um, seat numbers of both parties, he used it as the justification for new elections to be called. So he issued a proclamation for fresh elections to be called um, in May, a month later. Uh, so the first also decided to question the. Um, the powers of the head of state to um, to proclaim fresh elections. Um, yeah, so um, all the, um, the both parties were basically caught up in in litigation. Um, that was how it worked out over there. So the crisis ran for for four months. Uh, both HRPP and uh, Fast were in and out of court. We had uh, Prime Minister, the um, the former Prime Minister Tuilaipa. Uh, who was the leader of the party, uh, who was the um, uh, the prime minister in the interim period during the court proceedings. Uh, there were a number of um, issues that came up. Uh, there were protest marches against the, um, uh, the decision of the court because the court, the Supreme Court also ruled that 
while it ruled that the uh, the declaration of the um, of the women's seats uh, by the electoral commission was unconstitutional. Um, it also uh, ruled that uh, the fact that um, FAST decided to also conduct their own swearing-in because what happened was Supreme Court also um, ordered uh, for the head of state to hold parliament um, yeah. for the new for the new members of parliament to be sworn in. Um, that didn't that didn't happen. Um, that was um, supposed to be uh, held on on May twenty uh, fourth. Um, the um, the head of state issued a proclamation on the on on um, on the twenty on the twenty second on the twenty second, which was on a Saturday, um, saying that he will not um, call call parliament uh, to convene on the twenty fourth of May. Um, so, the, so uh, fast went again to uh, the Supreme Court on Sunday, which was on the twenty third of May, and uh, and sought orders uh, for Parliament to be convened. Um, and then Parliament uh, was supposed to convene on Monday, which was the twenty fourth of May, uh, but that didn't happen. So we all know what happened um, after that. So on the twenty fourth of May, um, the fast party led by Fiame Naomi Matafa went ahead and. Um, you know, uh, use powers un- under the constitution to to um, call their own swearing in. So they went through the process with their own lawyers, uh, taking on those powers to swear in uh, members of parliament, and they they were able to swear uh, their own members of parliament as the seventeenth parliament of Samoa. Mm-hmm. So um, the May twenty four swearing in by by the first party was later upheld by the Court of Appeal of Samoa in, on the 23rd of July, close to two months um, later. To, and the Court of Appeal basically ruled that um, the swearing-in that was held uh, by the first party uh, was constitutional in light of the fact that the agents of the state, including the clerk of parliament, including the head of state, who were asked by the court to convene parliament on the 24th, uh, were not available. So first party being forced by the circumstances of that particular day uh, took it on themselves um, to to uh, undergo the swearing-in ceremony. Um, so that was how the first um, government came into office on July 23rd. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we haven't had any, um, any major issues after that. Um, the uh, former prime minister at the time except considered defeat. Um, mm. uh, because of, I think there was a lot of pressure uh, coming in, uh, not only from the uh, from the local population, but also from the international community. We had uh, various governments in the region issue statements calling for for the um, for the prime minister and his administration at that time. Who yeah. were and since then, yeah, uh... yeah, yeah, they were in a caretaker mode, but basically they were asked to recognize the yeah. mission of the court. Yeah. And since then, the, the situation has been quite stable and now the new government is uh, running quite smoothly, right? Yes, that's right. We haven't had any major uh, issues since then. Um, so that was on the 23rd of July. Uh, Parliament met um, in September. Um, they, they, uh, they went through the, uh, through the formalities of swearing in uh, new members, uh, both fast 
members, first party members and HRPP members were also sworn in and then budget was brought down uh, for the financial year though a couple of months late. Uh, yeah, but um, since then there, there hasn't been um, uh, any major issues and then we had the by-elections in November and mm-hmm. of course um, FAST won most of the, I think out of the um, seven seats that were available from the, from the by-elections, FAST party got five. So that only okay. that only added to their majority. Um, yeah, so, so now it's even yes. more stable then. That's right. So they are around thirty. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of the numbers in parliament, uh, fast is currently on about thirty members. Uh, mm-hmm. We have, uh, and then uh, what happened was the uh, twenty-five that HRPP previously had. Uh, they were by elect. They were the electoral petitions, and the electoral mm-hmm. petitions cut down their numbers again, back to uh, back to twenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Although, so that that was quite a, a big political shift, and we can understand that it has been kind of a rocky transition because the previous prime minister was a very long time serving and one of the pillar of the of the regional politics. Uh, so, what do you think was uh, the factors that led to this change in government in in Samoa? Oh well, I think people. Uh, one of the main factors, I would say, is the um, is the land lands and titles bills. I'm mm. not sh- I'm not sure if you heard about the LTC bills controversy, and this was in one year uh, prior to the general election last year. So in 2020, uh, the Tuilapa government introduced these three sets of legislation, which they were going, which they wanted to push through parliament, to basically change the structure of the judiciary of the court system here. And uh, the Lands and Titles Court, which is the uh, the court in Samoa that deals with land mediation issues, um, and also the Matai system. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, here in Samoa, the Matai system uh, is is uh, the titles system, where you know of the, the chieftaincy system in for the different communities is quite mm-hmm. strong. And in order to be a member of parliament, you need to have a Matai. You need to have a chiefly title. Now, this was the court that was that took care of all the land matters as well as the Matai uh, title system. Uh, the the Laipa government wanted to change the, uh, the structure of the judiciary. Uh, and um, the end product was that the, L- the LTC court would not uh, uh, re- report to the, all its decisions would not come under scrutiny by the Supreme Court. So it was basically set up as an independent entity, totally outside of the, of the parameters of the Supreme Court um, and the appeals, appeal court. So um, uh, the president of the LTC court was to become uh, totally independent of the Supreme Court. Um, he, was to, he, had, he was to be given more powers under the, uh, the, the amendments to the Constitution uh, and under the new legislation. So that was what um, I think uh, was the, uh, the, uh, the X factor that compelled someone voters to um, to move to the to shift to fast because fast party took that on as one of their major platforms they promised to uh, to review the uh, the ltc acts because parliament actually passed the passed the law uh, when uh, the ltc bills went before parliament in december 2020 it was actually passed overwhelmingly there were only there were about three members four members, sorry, there are four members who voted against those bills. 
One of them was uh, Fiamme, the current prime minister. The other one was Lauli, who is the founder of the First Party. Um, he is the minister for agriculture uh, in the current government. And then we had the other two who are Olo and, uh, and Wayne, uh, who are also cabinet ministers now in the, in the new government. So they were the only ones who voted against the bills. And they were the ones who went, went on and, and formed the... Um, and formed the three of them, Lauli, Wayne, and, uh, and all of formed the first party. Uh, Fiamme joined them later uh, when they invited her to come over to join them as the party leader. And it was what started the whole revolution, um, if I can put it that way, when everyone yeah. decided to shift over to join, to join fast because there was a lot of uh, discontent and a lot of anger over how the government um, handled um, the LTC bills and, you know, to make the LTC courts totally independent of the Supreme Court and to change the structure of the judiciary. Yeah. So for me, I think that was the main, that was the, uh, mm. the main uh, uh, factor. But I know that there was a lot of resentment in terms of uh, how the HRPP government operated over the years. Um, there's been a lot of controversies, a lot of white elephant projects where the government spent millions um, on, you know, on some of the projects and there was, no form of accountability. There were there are some of the projects now, uh, despite you know a lot of public funds been been spent, uh, haven't been used to this very day. So there was a lot of accountability issues with the pre previous administration, and people wanted answers. And Fast Party offered them that op that opportunity, um, saying that we will we will um, be more accountable. We will. Look at uh, you know some of the corruption allegations that have emerged that are, that were connected to the previous government, and uh, will basically give a new lease of life um, in terms of a new government and a new parliament going forward. So those were some of the major factors which swayed the voters towards um, fast. Okay, I see. Interesting. So I'd like to take a, a broader view uh, at this point because so obviously Samoa was one of the big political story uh, of 2021 in the Pacific, but we had in uh, at the end of the year the Solomon Islands that went through uh, days of riots. Uh, we had New Caledonia with the referendum uh, story that also created a lot of, of, of debates and discussions. And, and on top of that, uh, the uh, Pacific Island forums went through uh, a little bit of a rocky situation also uh, during the renewal of the Secretary General. Um, so looking at all this and, and from your own perspective, do you think that our region is going through some kind of systemic change uh, in the way our institutions, both nationally and regionally, are working? Yeah, I, I think that, I think there is, a, there is a movement, if I can put it that way, uh, from the uh, constituency. They want they want more accountability from their leaders. Um, I think and uh, and with the with the arrival of social media, you just have to get onto a, a lot of these Facebook platforms to see how angry the population is um, in terms of how leaders in the Pacific Islands are conducting themselves. And I mean, if I can use, um, I, I was in Solomon Islands uh, covering. I was a reporter at the back then covering 
the deployment of Ramsey, the regional assistance mm -hmm. mission to Solomon Islands for the post core I spent a couple of months uh, in Honera. Um, and looking back at the recent riots that they had, uh, it is obvious to me that nothing has changed in terms of how the successive governments in Solomon Islands have conducted themselves in trying to deliver services to ordinary citizens. Um, I think people just want equitable you know, distribution of the nation's wealth uh, in terms of resources. They want hospitals, they want schools, uh, they want basic services, they want roads, you know, uh, so that they can be able to empower themselves both economically and socially. Um, that's not happening. And I think um, the riots, the recent riots in, in Honera were an indication of the frustrations that people were feeling. Um, it's, it's funny because, you know, um, this, I think the riots in Honera came after the, uh, uh, the crisis that we had here in Samoa, but it was totally different. Yeah. Totally different. There was no burning of, you know, businesses, no burning of homes or, you know, violence mm -hmm. of any form of all of that stuff. Um, it was more. Yeah, Samoa was very calm and yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We did have we did have protests mainly by Human Rights Protection Party supporters mm -hmm. over here who were who were frustrated the outcomes of the elections and the and the the, uh, the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal rulings that basically installed a fast government. Uh, but that's mm -hmm. already they just marched down the road, carried their flags. You know, they were given a platform to air their views and frustrations, and then they went home. Um, uh, that was that was all to it. Uh, nothing of this sort that happened happened in Honiara. But um, uh, and I mean, you know, uh, looking back at the you know the um, this is the 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 recent uh, referendum that was held in in uh, in Nome as well, you know, in, in Caledonia, mm -hmm. um, and you know uh, the the decision uh, by the constituency to to boycott uh, mm -hmm. to boycott the uh, the referendum. To me, that was. That was that's big, and that's an indication that you know uh, to to the leaders in the region that you don't call the shots. We need more consultation. Uh, more people need to be part of the conversation. Uh, we all need to sit at the equal table um, to be to be a part of the process. And if you're not going to give us that opportunity, then this is what we can do. Indeed. Uh, so when when we talk about accountability. Uh, one can easily think about journalism uh, uh, as seen as the fourth estate and the one that holds leaders accountable. Uh, so you are obviously a journalist and, and you have quite an experience in, uh, in that. You served uh, in the Pacific Freedom Forum, the Media Council of PNG, the Law Institute. So you have seen journalism through different lenses and at the regional scale. So how would you describe the situation of the journalism uh, profession in the Pacific today? Oh, it's tough. I think um, the, the profession is doing it tough right now. Um, and, and when I say tough, I don't only mean in terms of the, the challenges that, you know, that we get from social media platforms like Facebook, where everyone is, everyone is a reporter now. Everyone mm -hmm. can do, anyone can do breaking news on, on, on their Facebook page. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, so uh, th that's one of the challenges we have. But also in terms of the integrity of the content that you know that the journalists in the region have to put out on a daily basis, there's a lot of questions being raised about you know bias and you know uh, and journalists' affiliations to businesses or to politicians. Um, that's also happening. So there needs to be some form of accountability on our part as well, as, as journalists. Uh, it doesn't help doing a post mortem on 
on our own, you know, product and whether we are taking the right direction in terms of where we are going in empowering people with information. And I've always talked to uh, reporters in PNG and I've also I mentioned that here in Samoa as well. One of the key questions that reporters should be asking and journalists should be asking is, is your content empowering people? Um, if your content is not, <clears throat> not empowering people, then, um, then you should ask yourself whether you are in the right business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's very tough times for the, for the media here in the Pacific. And I mean, I can uh, make reference to, um, uh, there was a recent case three weeks ago where a newsroom of about 24 uh, personnel, reporters, uh, cameramen, uh, presenters, they were all set. Uh, they were given termination notices by the by the by the management of a government-owned uh, television station in PNG called MTV. Mm. So all these twenty-four employees are now who previously worked in the newsroom, um, and MTV is the largest. If I can, I think it's the largest television station in Papua New Guinea. Uh, it used to be privately owned, but eventually um, got sold um, to Fiji. Uh, media entity in Fiji, and then uh, got bought back by 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 uh, Telecom, uh, PNG, mm-hmm. which is the government-owned telecommunications provider back in PNG. So it's government-owned now, and the CEO um, and the management um, terminated 24 staff, basically because uh, the uh, the management didn't like some of the stories that um, that the uh, that the newsroom ran on a. There's a, there's a guy called Jamie Pang who was charged recently for smuggling uh, meth um, into, into PNG. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the, the, uh, there were some stories which the management thought that uh, was, was biased in favor of the, of the, uh, of the guy, uh, the Australian who was, who was charged. And uh, consequently, they decided to, to, uh, to suspend the, um, the head of the newsroom. And when the... When his staff protested, um, they showed the door to the rest of the of the news team. So twenty four Papua New Guineans, including journalists and presenters, are all out on the streets right now. So to me, that's an indication of the sort of challenges that government-owned media mm-hmm. have to go through on a daily basis in PNG. But not only PNG. If you had to look at at you know um, a lot of the media in in the Pacific Islands are government-owned because government is are the only ones with the funding to be able to run a media outlet. So uh, it's not a it's not a good um, you know precedent being set for other Pacific island nations because mm-hmm. it, it it could have uh, you know a ripple effect. It could mean that you know governments would say, hey, if, P- if the Pacific region's largest democracy, PNG, Papua New Guinea, can do this, then I can do this too. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the true. that's the scary thing about you know that 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 development three weeks ago. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been trying um, to I've been trying from my end uh, remotely uh, to, to put pressure for the management to, uh, to, to get the staff reinstated. Um, uh, I think there, there should be, uh, I, I'm not sure if there's a grievance process in place within the newsroom. Um, the news director, the news editor should always be the last line of defense between the management and the newsroom. Newsroom should always be independent. Uh, the editorial processes should always be independent and be objective. Um, that so those processes need to be in place, and I'm not sure if MTV has it, or whether the management just basically pushed everything aside and went ahead with the with the second. But those are some of the challenges that we are facing, and it's been mm-hmm. tough. And I think COVID nineteen has made it all the more tougher for media all around Indeed. the Pacific. 
And then I'll go back to COVID uh, in a minute, but I, I wanted to know if beside the pressure from governments who obviously never like that when cases of corruption or all those are uncovered by journalists, do you think that in the region there may be a lack of uh, maybe understanding or interest from the population towards journalism and thus no one is really willing to somehow, whether companies or private uh, people, to chip in and support journalism, knowing that it's important to hold leaders accountable? Yeah, no, that's... that's Philippe, I think that's very true. I think there's an integrity issue right now with the, with the industry. Mm. Um, there's a loss of trust um, in the industry. Um, and, and that's why I said earlier that, you know, uh, we in the industry uh, shouldn't hesitate, you know, uh, subjecting ourselves to some form of, you know, accountability. Uh, we need to have that in place if, if we are to get back that respect and trust from the people. Um, and uh, if it doesn't happen now, then, you know, that's basically the end of the industry. It means that we are on a sliding slope uh, yeah. down, you know, into the abyss. And, and that's not always good. Uh, we need to be and serious maybe a little about bit of, uh, Maybe a little bit of pedagogy also to explain people why journalism can be yes, so important. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I mean, you know, every, every year we have the, uh, the, uh, the Media Freedom Day celebrations. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we should capitalize on those opportunities to open our newsrooms to the public. Let the public come in and, and see how you, how you run your stories, what the studio looks like. Um, let them get on, get on air, either on radio or on television, uh, so that they can have the experience and feel what it's like being in, you know, being in the hot seat. I don't, think, I don't think we are doing enough of that um, in the Pacific Islands, to be honest. I think uh, every time we celebrate you know, World Media Freedom Day, we should be you know, opening our newsrooms to the public and to the people so they can get to see and appreciate the, the roles that we have uh, and we should be playing in the society. Indeed. That's an interesting uh, idea and I'm sure that would indeed open a lot of uh, minds for people to yes. know exactly what it takes. That's right. Because as you said earlier, uh, social media made a lot of people think that they could become yeah. journalists just by showing like a live video of something happening yeah. without all the context and the explanation. That's right. Uh, and obviously COVID was the, uh, a defining moment in terms of misinformation and disinformation, and especially also in the Pacific. So how do you navigate this new context to maintain the standard of news and to make sure that people are well informed in our islands, knowing all the misinformation that go through social media? Oh, well, um, the the many it's the it comes down to the editor to the editors and the news directors they need to be the ones putting their foot down in terms of accountability and ensuring that uh, their content that they get to put out on a daily basis you know ticks all the boxes it's balanced uh, it's not biased um, you give everyone a, an opportunity to have their say in the story um, you provide background um, even if it is back background you know bad background. Uh, I know that you know sometimes a lot of the stories might have implications for your advertising, um, but you need to bite a bullet on this one. Um, mm. it, it, it comes back to the ones who are who are managing the newsroom. It comes back to the to the editors and the news directors. They need to put their foot down. If it means that they need to go sit down with the publisher and the, the general manager of the company to explain to them what press freedom is and what it means to maintain editorial independence, then they should do that. Because that's the only way they can be able to stop 
this continued interference from management. Because if you, if you cannot stop management from interfering, then it means that you're opening the door to government to come in as well. And you don't want that happening. Uh, we always want to, to have content that is independent, independently produced and it, you know, it's balanced. It does not uh, have you know, uh, favoritism. Uh, you know, um, it should be objective. Uh, you need to have all those boxes ticked before you can start you know, putting out your content. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I'm all I'm all, I'm always a big fan of applying, you know, uh, a postmortem to your content at the end of every day. Uh, you need to go through that process because if you don't, uh, when you sleep on it, you become complacent. Then it means that uh, you open up your content to criticism. And then, what a lot of colleagues in the media don't realize is when one station or one radio station or when when one newspaper or one television station gets accused of being biased uh, or misrepresenting the facts in their story then it paints a bad picture overall for the whole industry all all the profession that's right it it has a ripple effect and everyone in the media you need to know that what 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 Mm. you whatever you do it has a ripple effect on your other colleague even though you are competitors you are rivals you know going for the same uh, advertising money and you know trying to put out the same content but you need to tick the box. And we all need to be, we need, there needs to be uniformity in terms of the quality of the content that we put out uh, for our readers and for our viewers and for our listeners. If you don't have that uniformity in terms of, in terms of quality mechanisms, then sorry, you will continue to, the industry will continue to be attacked. Yeah, indeed. But our, our social media is still a good platform for journalism? Yeah. Or is it bound to be drown into the the ocean of of bad information or whatever information because everything and anything is on social media so being heard properly when you're a journalist you've done like the proper work of contextualizing and all that must not be easy so is it still a good thing to use social media to spread good information oh yeah totally um and i mean here at the sum observer we have a we have a large following uh for our facebook page I think we. I think I must say we've got one of the largest in the region uh, in terms of reactions and uh, and the number of people who go and comment on our post. And I mean, and I understand that because we have a very large Samoan diaspora who are living outside of of Samoa, so mm-hmm. we will always have that have that following and that footprint. Uh, but Facebook and social media is here to stay, so we need to learn how to work with the with the platforms. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and harness the opportunities that come with it and make you capitalize, you know, on, the, on, on technology. And, I mean, the fact that we have a lot of governments who are now, you know, live streaming their press conferences on Facebook also means that, you know, uh, you, you as a news director, as a news editor, you ask, should I get a reporter to go out and attend a press conference or would I rather they sit here in the newsroom and just get it up from their, their PCs, mm-hmm. from their computers? Now, that's the question that you ask yourself. What's the, what's the best outcome for the newsroom in terms of content? Would you rather your reporter sit here in the newsroom and watch or they go to the press conference where they have the opportunity to ask a question? Um, and not just any ordinary question. You ask the hard questions because you shouldn't be sitting on there accepting everything that comes out from a politician. Um, you should be asking questions. You should use the opportunity to ask questions. So, And I know that there's a lot of newsrooms who, because of the very, very low numbers of reporters that they have, uh, they would rather the reporter sits in the newsroom, looks at the press conference on Facebook Live, 
and gets a story and then they can be able to do other things. So they multitask because everything is now made so accessible by thanks to technology. But then you you miss out on on asking the hard questions because you cannot do it through, you know, through through Facebook Live. You have to be there to mm-hmm. ask the hard questions. Yeah, so it's always a juggle. Um, and news editors and news directors have to go through that process every day. You need to refine your your process. But I think one way around it is you you have to be smart in the sort of press conferences that you cover. Um, and mm-hmm. it depends on the news agenda of the day. Um, there will always be stories that will come out from outside the press conference where you would need a comment from the prime minister. Now, that's when you need to have a reporter at the press conference. There are others when it could be just a school opening where the PM, the PM could also be a guest of honor. Now, maybe you can just send a junior reporter or you don't cover it. You just look at the, at the Facebook live stream and, and do your story off from there. Um, but we always try to seize every opportunity to, to, uh, to do our doorstop on the prime minister. And I think being out there, uh, asking questions um, in person as a representative of, of the organization also is visibility for your organization as a media company. That's you need to have yeah. visibility over there. And the prime minister needs to see that you're actually there doing the hard yards mm-hmm. and you're trying to hold them accountable. Uh, feeding off from a Facebook Live, for me personally, I don't think that's good practice. Um, I reckon that, you know, maybe there are some times when it's applicable when you have very, very less numbers of reporters, you know, being at work because 10 people are sick. But otherwise, I reckon that, you know, you should always be out there because being out there, being seen to be on the job and asking the hard questions, it actually creates you know, a good impression of your media organization. It shows to, to the leaders and to the politicians that these guys mean business. They want to hold us accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. All right. So uh, at, at this stage of the podcast, uh, usually I like to share a quote uh, to my guest uh, from someone from the same field. Uh, and so for you as a journalist, I went to look for an, another journalist, obviously. And, and I looked at the, the recent book from Ezra Klein, uh, the New York Times journalist. Uh, the book is called Why We Are Polarized. Uh, so I'm going to read to you the quote. Bear with me. It's a bit long, but I think it's it's quite relevant to our context. So that's what he says. The news is supposed to be a mirror held up to the world, but the world is far too vast to fit in our mirror. The fundamental thing the media does all day, every day, is to decide what to cover, decide that is what is newsworthy. If we simply cover what's newsworthy, then we're not the ones making the, those decisions. It's the neutral external judgment of newsworthiness that bears responsibility. The problem is that no one anywhere has a rigorous definition of newsworthiness, much less a definition that they actually follow. So reading that, it made me think that in in the Pacific, we live in relatively small communities, uh, which make the news always closer to us, right? Uh, And with someone, somehow we always know someone who's involved in this or that news event, right? So sometimes it can be difficult, I'm guessing, to take the necessary distance as a journalist to cover the event with the neutrality or the critical approach that requires your, your job, right? So from your experience, how do you overcome this challenge and, and, and for any journalist in the region and how to make sure that all news worthy of reporting are covered and shared in a way that will help our communities to be empowered, as you say at the, at the beginning? <laughs> Philippe, I like that. I like that. Um... <laughs> You know, the funny, the funny thing is that the stories change, but the standards never change. Mm. 
the same the standards remain remain the same regardless of whether you're in Samoa you are in you know in Tahiti you're in Papua New Guinea in 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 the Solomon Islands journalism standards never change um, you need to ensure impartiality you need to be objective in your reporting you need to ensure balance uh, your stories need to be fact based um, you know uh, you need to get the context right for your readers provide background for them um, so that they can be able to appreciate the issues those rules, those you know, the, the the rules never change. It's just the issues mm-hmm. continue to change, and it's funny because uh, I was just telling um, some of our reporters last year over here because we had some of the big corruption cases from last year, having to do with the with the uh, previous government, and mm-hmm. I told them I said this is this is so this is so like PNG, and they said what do you mean? And I said oh well, this corruption story here is similar to a, another story back in PNG, but it happened like ten years ago. And, you know, it's the same stories with the same angles that keep on changing. It's just the names that are different 10 years later. Mm. So it means that the, the standard, the rules of journalism in terms of ticking the boxes, ensuring content is right, it's based on facts, you know, uh, it's objective, it's impartial. The rules never change. And that's, that's, you need to use that as the benchmark. Um, and, and for my four years over here, here at the Sum Observer, I've seen that, uh, and we continue to go through this challenge. Um, and Samoa is a, it's, it's a small country. It's, you know, 200,000 people. I just mm-hmm. moved here from a country that's close to 10 million uh, people yeah, now. Much bigger, yeah. <laughs> yeah, much bigger in PNG. And I've just moved to, a, a, in 2018, I moved to a 200,000, you know, populated mm-hmm. nation. Uh, we've already had, we've run, we've run stories where the chief editor was on the, on the front page because... He got arrested for, for drink driving. Oh. Yeah. So, I can't think of any other benchmark that you can that you can set. If your chief editor is on the front page and he's he's in court for drink driving, hey, then you that means that if you can hold a chief editor accountable who is who basically owns the company, then you you're setting the standards. It's it's so so high. Over here, and I had to share that story. And this was in 2020. I had to share that story with uh, with my colleagues back in PNG because I couldn't think of any other example of 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 being accountable in terms of the media, and and you know, and the rules shouldn't change, even if the publisher or the you know the the editor in chief, even myself. The rules are applicable regardless of whether you're at the top or you're at the bottom. Um, the rules should never change in a newsroom. You need to be accountable to the readers. And if there's a certain standard of behavior and conduct that you expect of leaders in the country where you publish, then you apply the same rules to yourself as a media organization and as an employee of a media media organization. And, uh, and it's a tough one, you know, uh, and it's all right. You're trying to uh, look through the mirror and you're trying to, what's the... You know, what's it like in terms of your view of the world? How do you drive the news agenda um, of, of, the, of, the, of the media organization that you are working for? And you would want your content uh, to be, your content here to be a reflection of, of, you know, of everything that's happening in the community. Uh, but you need to, one thing is you need to make sure that your head is always in the right place. And that's, that's where I come in in terms of the standards. So long as your head is there, um, in terms of the standards that are, you know, accountable and, you know, being accountable and being fact-based, 
reporting with impartiality and objectivity, then you won't mm-hmm. go wrong, my friend. You won't go wrong. Mm-hmm. That's true. So in a way, to summarize uh, what you just said is basically the best quality of journalism is also its highest challenge, which is living up to your standard all the time, whatever That's the right. size of a community, whatever the event, even if it touches you personally, you have to follow your rules and your standards, whatever, right. whatever it takes. That's right. That's right, my friend. That's right. That's what it is. So knowing that, uh, my last question for you, because uh, like I'm, I'm thinking whoever is listening to that, and especially journalists and, and, and even more, especially young journalists, would be listening to, the, to this conversation and, and, and measuring up the challenge that is to be a journalist in the region, what would be your advice or your recommendation for them to keep up with the good work or to continue to be a positive agent of change that empower the community? Oh, if you're a journalism student studying journalism, wherever you are in the Pacific Islands, um, pay a lot more focus on media ethics. Because media, media ethics, once you get it right with media ethics, it will take you a long way. Uh, and you need to, you know, uh, you need to revolve your, your brand of journalism around media ethics and what it means to be a journalist and the code of conduct that you have as a journalist. Um, it would save you a lot of money in terms of court cases. You may go to court, but if you follow your media ethics, you will most likely win the case. Um, and, you know, speaking from experience, you know, when I was working for the Post Korea, we had like, I think we had like seven court cases, defamation cases that were filed against us. And three of them ended up in med- mediation and we won all of them. So we paid way, way less. I think we paid like 20,000 tala or something for, you know, in, in cost. And then there was one time when we had to pay to a charity as part of the negotiations. So at the end of the day, everyone walked out happy. So, so long as you, you know what your, what your role is uh, as, a, as a journalist and, and where, your, where the code of conduct sits in regards to the content you are trying, that you are trying to create, then everything should be okay. Uh, there will be challenges, but so long as you know the, your ethics and the, your responsibilities as a, as a media practitioner and as a journalist, um, then you know, those are all the tools of the trade that you've already got you know, under your belt. And everything should work out fine for you. Yeah. So, well, that's a good uh, note of hope to end this conversation. Alexander, thank you. Uh, so much for your time and for highlighting the situation of journalism in the Pacific and all the best to you. Thank you for the opportunity, Philippe. Thank you. All the best. Pacific Talks is a podcast hosted by me, Philippe, and produced by Pacific Venture Media. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to subscribe to any podcast platform of your choice. You can also share it on your social medias or with your friends, family or colleagues. And if you listen to it on a podcast platform, feel free to leave us a review. This is very important to us as it helps us to reach out to more people. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas following this conversation with Alexander, You can reach out to us directly by email contact at pacificventury.com 
or on all our social platforms. Until next time, with another guest, another discussion on the challenges of the Pacific. Take care and see you soon.